one moment, please. Uh, would you please do that again? Once more, please. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it ain't often that a goatish cry of pure, unbridled passion is broadcast coast to coast. Yes, and, and we're here looking down on a scene of unrivaled debauchery. <laughs> we are here in the limelight in the heart of Greenwich Village, and you all know how Greenwich Village is. Well, this is the heart of it. If you listen carefully, you can hear the sound of girdles creaking. If you listen even more carefully, you can hear the sound of them preparing in the kitchen 400 pounds of grape. <laughs> oh, we've got a show for you tonight. We've got some Nubian handmaidens lined up. And we've got a lute player. Who wants to be the first volunteer? Oh, he's eight years old. <laughs> you don't know what you're asking for, kid. Oh, let me tell you, this, these, these, are, these are nervous times, you know, that tomorrow morning is Father's Day. And I was looking through the papers just about an hour and a half ago at the gifts they suggest for the new father. You know, it's a new style father. Have you seen some of those gifts in the New York Times? Well, that's an official paper, you know. They don't, they don't fool around. This is a serious paper. In fact, it says right on the front of their paper all the news that fits the print. How about that for a snotty slogan? <laughs> you know, isn't it terrible? You do something big and they don't print it, and you realize you're not fit. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, can, you, can you imagine doing a fantastic crime and the Times doesn't cover it? All the news that fit the print, and they have this page, and it says suggestions for Father's Day. And I can't believe my eyes. The first suggestion, it shows this guy. Have you seen it? He's in profile. And it says, a fantastic gift for Father's Day. The new Father's Day hairnet. Oh, yes, it says, for him to put on after he's taken his shampoo and his hair has been set. It makes a fine Father's Day gift, satisfaction guaranteed to your money back. I can see me giving a hairnet to my old man. <laughs> I could just see it. I say, hey, Dad, it's Father's Day. Yeah, here it is. It says, listen, it's fantastic. It says, now new hair control for men with the new sports net. Don't quite get close enough to call it a hairnet yet. You know, it's called a sports net. And it says, yes, this new sport net, after you comb and dress your hair. Somehow I like the idea of this man. He's bald as a bigger ball. He laughed. No, I could just see this man in front of the mirror, you know, and he's combing his hair. And he gets it all set, you know, he sets it. Have you seen they sell the spray stuff now, you know? He sprays it, you know, and he puts the little stuff, and then he puts his hair net over it. Daddy is ready for bed. <laughs> Can you see him lying there then 20 minutes later in the sack, see? And there is his, is his wife next to him. And he says, don't move. You're rattling. You're rattling my... Don't move, baby. He says, please. Please, now. He says, you're, you're, you're rattling my curlers. It's the new daddy. Now, in the same... Now, wait a minute. In the same list, Look at this. Here is a magnificent picture. This is from the New York Times. It is a description of the new father. And it's also a suggestion for Father's Day. It says, give your father the newest rage among executives. 
false eyelashes. Oh, isn't that sweet? Can't you see you sitting there in front of Mr. Bullard asking him for a raise? And he flutters his eyelashes at you. Those big old black eyelashes, just a little touch of shadow. You say, Mr. Bullard, I never knew you cared that way. He flutters his eyelashes. I can see the new daddy getting a, getting a set of eyelashes and a hairnet. And the final one, I think, is even more interesting. On the same page, magnificent Father's Day gift. It says, either, it's a rare collector's item for Father's Day especially. Either the most authentic reproductions we've ever seen or uncertified antiques. A heavy, a heavy armor-breaking mace. A magnificent club with a spiked metal head. This may be your only opportunity to possess this most unusual collector's item. Makes a fine Father's Day gift, 14 pounds. Somehow, what a magnificent picture of the new father. His false eyelashes, his, his hairnet, and a mace. How about that for psychological insight? You know, it, it, it says it far more than Tennessee Williams can, France. Oh, yeah, can't you see him ready for bed? And he's wearing his Japanese silk kimono. You've seen them advertised in the New Yorker and that, you know, it's the shorty model, you know, with the velvet collar. And it's got his great big monogram all over here in gold and sequency. And it says, Daddy. <laughs> big sash, you know. He's got his hair all fixed for night, you know. He's put doo-doo or del-del or gel-gel or whoopee-whoopee or whatever they call that stuff, you know. Dippity-doo. <laughs> you ever heard, isn't that one of the, one of the wildest commercials? You ever heard that guy that can show dippity-doo? <laughs> dippity-doo. Dippity-doo. And you know, he's got his dippity-doo in his hair. Some of that sounds obscene, doesn't it? Dippity do sounds like something that little dogs do. You know, just... <laughs> Terribly. <laughs> and you know, there it is, you know, and he's getting ready for bed. It's Father's Day, you know, and it's that evening, and the kids have given him all his gifts, and he's got his hair up, and he's got his false eyelashes on, and he's got his mace in his hand. <laughs> and he says, gee, this has been a wonderful Father's Day. It's all there, you know. And today, I want to tell you, though, there's another world that runs concurrently with this. Nobody ever writes about it. Today, I am at Yankee Stadium. This is another scene entirely. Oh, yeah, it was one of those great moments, you know, that we all have in our lives. But here, in the last couple of years, every year, the New York Yankees and the Valentine Beer Company, they invite the, the guys in town that are in radio and television to come and play a ball game at Yankee Stadium before the real game. Now, let me tell you how they do it. They do it right, see. Every guy is issued a uniform, and you come down into the Yankee dressing room, and you, you walk right in there, you know, you're at the Yankee dressing room, and you've got your little bag. It's got your glove, your spike shoes, and a few other things I can't talk about. Oh, yeah, you know, you come in there, and, and, and you'd be surprised what a thirsty you. you start walking down this runway thing, and there's a big sign. The first thing you see, maybe you've never even been down in the basement of Yankee Stadium, there's a sign that says, 
no women allowed past this point. And do they mean it? There's a cop sitting there, see? And he's got a mace. <laughs> he's got a big chew of plug tobacco. You know, he's a big guy he's sitting there. He's been there 40 years. And once in a while, he goes... <laughs> and you walk past that, see? And all of a sudden, you're in the other world. This is the world that you never see reported on those little John Updike stories. Have you ever felt that John Updike, as a literary man, is weaving little doilies? Endless little doilies. And suddenly you're in another world. You walk down this concrete and you begin to smell sweat. You smell sweat. And then you smell Life Boy soap. You know that smell of Life Boy soap, you know? And you begin to smell leather. Thank you. <laughs> and you, you begin to smell this leather smell, see? And as you get closer, there's a big green door. And it says, stay out. Yankee dressing room. And you walk right up to it. And the guy looks up at you and says, okay. What a feeling. You know, can you imagine that fantastic feeling? You're going in with a glove. You're not going in to interview anybody. You're going in, you've got a glove, you know, spike shoes. You walk in the Yankee dressing room, see? And here are all these cubicles. You never see a dressing room in a major league ballpark. Let me see how it looks. They've got all little, like little phone booths with the front off. They're little cubicles. And over each phone booth is a name. Mantle. That's all it says. Then it says, Merit. Then there's another one that says, Ford. Here's one over here. It says, Stottlemyre. And you walk in there. Got your bag, see? You're looking for your dressing room. Yeah. The guy says, you're number four. And you turn around. This is what happened to me today, see? He says, you're, you're in number four. I said, number four. Okay. I walk around. And here it is. Number four. And above it is a sign which for me had sent. Moses, you're right, baby. Here's the only chick in town who knows. Give her a hat. Say it out loud. Who is it? Let me say it again. Wally Moses. Now, do you know who Wally Moses is? I'll tell you who he is. He's the Yankees batting coach. And why is he the batting coach? He's the best, one of the best batters that ever played big league ball. And I remember as a little kid, he played on the White Sox. As a little kid. He used to go out there. My old man would hit me in the elbow. You know, I'm half asleep, sleep, 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 I'm a little kid, you know. I'm sitting there snoozing off, and my gut is full of popcorn and junk, and I'm looking like, ooh, you know. You know how you get after, you know, a doubleheader. The old man never misses a play. Entire doubleheader. He'd sit there and watch everything. Just like, like he's, he's, you know, like he's vibrating. All of a sudden, he hit me in the, in the ribs. Say, wake up. Say, what's the matter? Say, wake up. He says, Wally Moses is up. There, way down there on that green would be this tiny figure. 
built like a wedge. I'm not kidding, really. He's built just like He's built a perfect hitter. He's built like this. He's got this heavy chest, short, thick neck. Got that angry jaw. And you see it way down there. Now, I never saw a ball player any closer than two and a half miles away. My old man, we used to sit in the general admission upper deck. And the White Sox had the longest park in the history of baseball. We're 600 miles out, see? We're just this side of the lake. And we'd see this guy down there, this little tiny character. You see this little figure. And the entire stands would get silent. He is the one ball player on the White Sox. Outside of Luke Appling. And Luke Appling has batted two innings before. And here comes Wally up. And the crowd would get silent. And that St. Louis Browns pitcher, he's already lost 22 this season. He's got two almost victories. One probable. Here he's standing, looking down. And Moses had this, this whip bat. He'd snap it, see. And I remember sitting there watching him. My old man says, look at him. He's one of the great batters of all time. Watch him. My dad always had this ambition that one day I would play the outfield for the White Sox. What a ridiculous ambition. <laughs> Me play the outfield for the White Sox. And he, he'd say, watch him. Well, here today, I'm in this little cubicle, see. And it says Moses above. And there's two stools they've placed. You know how they, how they do it in the big leagues? It's fascinating to people who don't know. Every day... They put a little stool in the guy's dressing room. A little thing, see? And they put a clean uniform on it. It's all folded up. And on the top of the uniform is his hat. And there's his belt hanging. You know that? And then you see he's got this little shelf and he's got all the little things that he lives with. You never imagine Mickey Mantle has got a half-empty bottle. You know, a half-empty bottle of, uh, of this aqua velva. And it's kind of messy, see? Yeah, and you look over here, and, and Tom Tresh has got a whisk broom in his. Yeah, and, 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 and I, I keep looking around, see, and over here, Hector Lopez. He's got hanging in his, he's got a coat. Just hanging there, see, and it's all pressed, and it's got a little sign that says, for sale. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth, so help me. It says, for sale, and it's a special. It says, contact H. Lopez, you know. Somehow I wanted to say, hey, Hector, how about a coat, you know? <laughs> you know? And here they're all sitting around, and all the Yankees are in there. You know, there's about 15 or 20 of them there already, you know, and they're walking around. they got towels around them. They're going in and out of the shower. There I am, see? I'm taking off my pants, you know, putting on my shirt. It's got a great big number on the back. And, and, and incidentally, in my shirt, there was a little tag. It says Stottlemyre. I had Stottlemyre's shirt. I put the shirt on, you know. <laughs> You'd be surprised what it does, you know. George Ade had an old slogan. Great statement. He says, get a good costume, and the part plays itself. And that's true. I put the suit on, you know, put the pants on, pull the hat down. There's a mirror hanging in Mr. Moses, his little cubicle. And all of a sudden, here's this man, comes walking around. He's got a towel around him, see? This guy walks in, he sits down in the cubicle right next to me. He sits down, he starts taking off his shower shoes, you know, and he's pulling on his socks. 
It's Wally Moses. Wally Moses, see? If my old man had lived to see this, he wouldn't have believed it. I'm in the same dressing room with Wally Moses, and we're both getting dressed for a ball game. He wouldn't have believed it. He's getting dressed, you know, and I, I finally had to say something, you know, and I look up to him and I say, uh, <laughs> that's all that came out. <laughs> you know, up to this time, I've been feeling like Stottlemyre, and I walk around, and he, he, he looks over and he says, it looks like a good day to <laughs> it. And he says, I just was out. He says, it ain't going to rain. I says, <laughs> yeah, it ain't going to rain. There's a long pregnant pause, and he's trying to figure out who I am, see? I'm just another ball player, which is the greatest way to be, see? I'm sitting there, see? He keeps glancing over at me. He said, just got in from Kansas City. <laughs> oh, there is the moment when you have that fantastic moment of decision. To lie or not to lie. You know, you know I just had a feeling like saying, yeah... Yeah, I just got off the train. Oh, boy, what a ball club, you know. Am I glad to get traded? <laughs> you know, I, could just, I wonder what he would have done. But he says, well, uh, let's go out and warm up. You know, I'm sitting there, and I finally had to say it. And I says, <laughs> I'm dressed as a ball player, see? Remember that. I've got a suit with a big 73 on the back. Big Yankee hat. I'm feeling nine feet tall. And here's this guy, this swarthy man sitting there. He's got rippling muscles. And even to this day, he's a legend. He is the guy that has taught many top hitters in the game today to hit. That means he can still hit, see? So I'm looking down at these shoulders. And I says to Wally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> He says, yeah, kid. I says, uh... Can you give me some tips? He says, what's the trouble? I says, well, I'm stepping in the bucket. I says, no, no problem, kid. I says, you're Wally Moses, aren't you? He says, yeah. I says, well, I'm... <laughs> I'm Gene Shepherd. <laughs> he says, oh, yeah, you played for Toledo, didn't you? <laughs> you know, again, I'm up against that thing, see? And I says, no, I didn't. I play for this rotten radio station. <laughs> and then he looks up at me and he says, oh, yeah. He says, I hear you at night. You're that nut. <laughs> you know, and I says, well, yeah, Wally, I'm that nut. <laughs> you know, and I says, I says, well, Mr. Moses, I just... Do you mind if I call you Wally? Says, yeah, that's my name, kid. I says, well, Wally, when I was a kid, I used to sit out in left field in the upper deck at Comiskey Park. And when you would come to bat, my old man would holler, Hey, Wally! And he always thought you could hear him. <laughs> he says, I could. <laughs> what a pair of lungs that louth had. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I says, well, I says, you know, I says, my old man would pass out if he knew that I'm sitting here talking to you. He thought you were the greatest hitter in the Western world. The pregnant pause. 
Well, he says, well... <laughs> you know, there's no question about it. He's got forearms like hams, you know. He's got these great big hands that are calloused, and they're covered with this pitch. You know that stuff they rub on bats? It's so covered in his hands that obviously his hands, he can't even get them clean anymore, you know. It's, it's ground in. A real gladiator sitting there, I see. I said, well... <laughs> I said, gee, I can't tell you how it feels to be in the same dressing room. He says, yeah, I wish I'd turn on the air conditioning. <laughs> you know, he's playing it real cool. And then I see across the dressing room, see, I see Mickey Mantle walking in. And Mantle's just got this little sport shirt, you know, a crummy sport shirt on. He's got these sort of wrinkled pants. You know, you never imagine Mickey Mantle's hair's all messed up, you know, and he walks in. And he sort of real heavy kind of sits down like this, you know. And he looks around. And that one minute, Mickey Mantle looking around the Yankee dressing room. Can you imagine a guy who is any more at home in the office than this? Mantle looks around, you know, and I see Whitey Ford walk past. He's dragging a towel, see. And then I decide maybe what I better do is take a shower. I noticed all the real ball players are taking a shower before the game, see. So ten minutes later, I'm in a shower now, see. The water's pouring down. And I see this head over here. There's a head bobbing around in the waters, flying down all around him. And this guy says, hey, give me the towel. Hey, get him, give me a towel. I got stuff in my eye. And I hand him the towel. I gave Whitey Ford his towel today. And he thought I was another ball player. You'd be surprised. They all look alike in the showers. Yeah, the water's flying and splashing, you know, and I'm down there, and Hector Lopez is hollering. I come out, I'm putting the towel on. See, I'm playing like I'm just in from Kansas City. And ten minutes later, I am out. Let me tell you this fantastic moment. I am out on the field now. And here it is, 22,000 people. There I've got the suit on. And I run down the runway. Do you know how they get in the runway from their dressing room? There's a long, slanting runway, see? And they run down, and you hear these these spikes, clack, 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 clack. And Joe Pepitone is combing his hair, you know. He really does, you know. He looks like a Brooklyn hood, you know. He does, you know, and he's got big duck tails, you know. He comes... Yeah, he's fantastic. He really looks the way you think he looks when you're sitting in the stands. You know, he comes down, he says, Hello, gang, how are you? I say, Hi, Joe. And he says, Hello, Mac. You know, he figures I'm another utility infielder. We've run down there. And now I'm in the dugout, see. Hi, George, I'm in a Yankee dugout. And you know, it's real flat. They, they look at it at about eye level. And the field, you can't see any of the field from the dugout. Do you know that? The whole field just sort of rises up and goes off into the distance like a big hill. And all you can really see from the dugout is the batter and the pitcher. Because they're on the top of the hill, see. And you see just a little edge of the head way out in the outfield, see. And I'm standing there looking up. And Phil Rizzuto comes over to me. He's the manager of our team, see? Phil Rizzuto, number 10, one of the greatest shortstops in the game, a great ball player. Phil comes up and he says, Shep, you're leading off. I'm leading off. Phil Rizzuto said to go up and hit. I select the lumber. You know, here's the lumber, you know, the, all those bats, see? I pick up a bat. I hit it down. I just put it back in. Phil says, uh-huh, you use a 34-incher, huh? I said, yeah. I snap it, see, whip it with a clay on it, you know, out I go. Can you imagine that minute? Standing at home plate, 
There it is. It's the same identical home plate that Babe Ruth stood at. No kidding, it is. It's the same home plate that Joe DiMaggio stood at. The same home plate that King Kong Keller. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> Can't you imagine yourself on the phone? Hey, this is King. <laughs> King who? Kong. King Kong Keller, yeah. King Kong Keller, all those great ball players. And I'm standing there seeing you. Look around, and, the, and the, the stadium sort of swallows you. Just fantastic. And, and you'd be surprised to know that when you're down on the field, you can't hear anything from the stands. It's like a general hum of an air conditioning, you see. You just hear, wah, wah. And then the PA system says, I'm all leading off. Playing third base, number 73. And it echoes. <laughs> Shepard, number 73. Shepard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to go over and say, will you please repeat that? <laughs> you know? I don't think they heard it in right field. Try it. <laughs> I got up the bat, you know, and I kicked the dirt. And I could see this pitcher up there on the mound. He's looking down. The catcher's crouching. The umpire's crouching down over his shoulder. There's the wind-up, the pitch. And it comes sailing down. You know, that's a high mound. It seems to come down from above and down, see. It slants down high and outside. Ball one. I step out of the box. <laughs> I give him that look down at chicken. Chicken. I kicked the dirt a little bit, you know. I've seen a lot of TV. I know how to do it. <laughs> I hitch myself upright, you know, that TV hitch, you know. You know, kick it a little bit. I dig in. You know, that's the, that's the Roger Mara shimmy. Oh, yeah, he's got that snotty little movement, see. He goes like this, see. Cocks that bat up, and I take this one cut. There's the windup, the pitch. That ball is coming in from the outside. It slants down. Shepard swings, and it hits. I feel it. You know that? You feel that solid hit? I see it going out over the pitcher's mound, out over second base, into center field. Shepard is single. Shepard is single, you know? And now I'm standing on first base. You know, I kick the dirt a little spit. I look up at the stand, you know, that snotty look. You know, that, 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 that runner that's just got the, you know, got the hit. I look over here to left, you know, my left there, and here's the coach. He says, take a lead, you, you lout. I, said, I look back. There's a quick slam, bang, and Shepard's caught off first. I am trapped in a rundown. Back and forth I go. Suddenly I dive into second base safe. And I look down in the, in the dugout, and there's sitting... Is Wally Moses. He's looking, see. Spits. Five minutes later, I'm in the dugout. And I walk past Moses towards the water cooler. And Moses says, You always hit the right, huh? I says, yeah. He says, Well, you're you're cutting your wrist down too low. He says, We'll work on it tomorrow before the Detroit game. I'll be back in five minutes. So let's hear it. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. And I'm sorry! 
Now, don't you feel silly. <laughs> and by the way, didn't it feel good? <laughs> you, you, you ought to see the way they light up here. Yeah, little old ladies all of a sudden start waking up and are, oh boy, a rotten bum! <laughs> oh yeah, the hate that lies just under the surface is the best kind of hate. And you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of that, somebody before the show, someone came down and he said, look, he said, Chef, he says, you have not yet given recognition to those 84 million kids right now who have just gotten their diplomas, their high school diploma, or their college diploma, you know? And, and they're out there in the darkness now, riding around in their cars out in Indiana, out in Ohio, you know? And they figure, they figure that it's all going to begin. And there's this fantastic road lying ahead of them, you know? It's unbelievable, see? And they're driving around that paper in their back pocket, they figure they're going to be a VP somewhere next week, you know. They're driving around. And I suggest right now, this minute, how would you like to send a message to all of them out there? There's millions of them driving around in their cars right now. What would you like to say to them? Oh, Excelsior, nah. Half of them couldn't spell that. They all learned phonetically, you know. They would they spell it E-C-S, you know. No, no, what would you like to say? Like, you'll be sorry? <laughs> or go back? <laughs> or, or, or how about, let's say, uh, how about some suggestions? We can all holler it out here to get... What? <laughs> oh, come on, take a left turn. That's not... Uh, you see what I mean? Look, 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 listen to the rabble here. You're totally disorganized and totally facetious. What we ought to do is sing one bar of pomp and circumstance. Isn't that a great symbolic thing for graduation? Pomp and circumstance. How symbolic that is for life, you know. Da, 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 Ba 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 hit it! Ba 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 Oh, fantastic! How about that for a message? Give him a hand. Let's hear it. And by the way, you know, I can't think of a better title for a song to be played at graduation, Pomp and Circumstance. How about that for a description of life? I mean, you know, the first one we understand, Pomp. You know, that's when we all walk around, see? You know, we got gray suits on. We shake hands. That's all Pomp, see? That's life. That's Pomp. And we, you know, we sign checks. Big swirl, you know. That's all pomp. But what about the other word? <laughs> Circumstances. You know, you sign the check beautifully and it comes back. <laughs> Insufficient funds. All right, that's circumstance, kid. Or, you know, you meet this fantastic chick. 
You know, she's really fantastic. And you go through, you go through this very subtle ballet, this courtship. This is circum, you know, this is pomp. Oh, yeah. You send her to flowers. You take her to this jazzy restaurant, you know. And you drive around in the car and you say silly things. You know, I, you, you know how many of you know that terrible feeling, see, of sitting next to a chick or the other side, you know. You're a chick sitting next to this guy and you're talking and you've got a date with her. It's the first date and she's fantastic, you know. You've been sort of circling around her for weeks. You know, she works in the office and you keep circling around, see. <laughs> Once in a while, you catch her back near the water cooler, see? You kind of trap her. You smile. You got your... Oh, yeah, every man has his cute face. Oh, yeah, and they work on it, you know, from the time they're about two, you know? You know, and some guys make a whole career of it. Tony Perkins. You know, and, and William Holden's got this cute face. You know, you know I can just see it. Oh, yeah, uh, another one, another guy that has the cute face, he turns it on all the time, you can see it, is Dean Martin. You know, he looks sideways. And I can see this little slob at the age of two. He's discovered, see, by going, his mother's got like this, you know, she's, aww. And ever since that time, he's been working on it, polishing it, honing it, see. And I, I remember the first time my cute face worked. I didn't realize it, see. I had this aunt. Now, we all have got an aunt who insists the minute she comes in the house or you come in her house, you got to kiss her. And she's got, she's got one of these slobbering kisses. You know, the kind, and she wears false dentures, false teeth to you, you know, and once in a while they bite you, you know, on the way. And I had this aunt, and she always had this funny kind of breath that nobody in my family did, see? It was kind of... Oh, yeah, it kind of cleared your eyes, you know. Yeah, part your hair a little bit, you know. And I can remember my mother saying, go kiss Aunt Lil. Now, come on, give her a kiss. And you know, she said, come on over here, come, Jeannie, you know. And the next thing you know, plah. And you get the breath, you know. And she says, oh, isn't that cute? Give me another itsy kiss. Nah. Then she goes, blah. Well, it wasn't until years later I discovered what that, what that, that aroma in her breath was. It was Jack Daniels. <laughs> I got to hand it to her. She knew a good bourbon. You know, and so I would get a little breath of Jack Daniels, you know. And, and I remember one time saying to my mother, because she was the drunken aunt, who never really was drunk, you know. She would just sit there with a funny smile. <laughs> Yeah, she would always sit, Aunt Lil was, I always remember her, she was a vague aunt that never really, she never could quite make the family parties. You know, Aunt Lil would sit there like this. And once in a while she'd say, give me a kiss, Jeannie. You know, Aunt Lil, oh, what a great aunt. And, and it was only until years later, see, I realized that it was this bourbon. Well, okay, we've got that kind of aunt in our lives. And there is one moment, though, when as we live with these people, we suddenly realize the truth of them. And I remember one day, I'm in the, I'm in the kitchen, see, and Aunt Lil is coming tonight. How many of you had a, a, a relative that whenever she was coming tonight to the house, you felt terrible? <laughs>
as a kid, or you were going to her house. You know, my mother would say, get dressed, we're going to Aunt Lil's house. Ah, gee whiz. Washington, now you shut up. Now get dressed, and you be nice to her, and you kiss her. And 20 minutes later, I'm at Aunt Lil's house. And it was one of those houses where it was, a, it was an apartment. You know when they used to call them flats? It was an apartment, and you could always hear the radiator going. Summer and winter, it would be going, and it's dripping, see. Aunt Lil. Well, as we lived through these ants and all these fantastic little involvements between one and another, we begin to develop this thing called pomp, the kiss. The, uh, let's have lunch, Charlie, sometime. See, the sometime is the symbolic word. That means you call me and I'm out, Dad. Now, let's have lunch sometime. Uh, let's get together sometime. Uh, we really ought to make this more often, Fred. And everybody knows that you can't stand each other. But it's all punk. And then comes circumstance. Circumstance is simply bad luck. Have you, ever know, have you ever noticed how the word luck never is used in an American success story? Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen when, when they're interviewing some actor on TV or some big writer or somebody, you know, big guy, and they say, Mr. Murchison, would you uh, tell us how you got ahead? Do you have any advice to give to the kids? He says, yes. Uh, study hard. Work. That's important, work. You've got to have a little talent. You've got to think good, clean thoughts. Of course, underneath it, you see, it says, Mr. Charles Murchison, president of the Almighty God Corporation. <laughs> and you know, you see, that, that he's taking credit for all these fantastic qualities. He never once says, you've got to have good luck. Now, let me tell you what happened to me. It was this vice presidency. I didn't get into the job ten minutes. If he ever tells you the real story, see. Ten minutes, I get in the job, see, and I'm his office boy. And one day I come in, and I'm emptying out his wastebasket, and I found this letter from this Tootsie, from this chick. And she said, if you don't come across J.B., it's going to be your you-know-what. Well, I took that letter out. You know how it is. I'm a kid. I collect autographs. And 20 minutes later, I come in to J.B., and I say, hey, J.B., uh, and J.B. looks up at me and says, remember, you're an office boy. I said, yes, J.B., except uh, <laughs> reading a funny little letter here from a lady named Tootsie O'Toole. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, I'm an assistant vice president. <laughs> you know, they never tell you the real story, see, of real life. And, and I'm going to tell you a, the, the unbelievable circumstances that can get together, can contrive to totally sink you. And I'm addressing it to those kids out there that figure that this piece of paper means that it's going to go all the way. I'm in the Army, see. You want to hear an Army story? Yeah. Oh, you know, I'll tell you why the Army is such a great place to tell stories about. Because this is these circumstances in the raw. And they ain't all you see in the raw. See, a lot of things in the raw. And that's what this story is about, see. I'm in this company, 
and we're way down in the boondocks. We've been in these boondocks for a hundred years. And the only excitement that we ever felt was once in a while you could hear an alligator off in the swamp calling for his mate. You ever heard an alligator calling for his mate? It's really thrilling. You're lying there in your sack, see? It's two in the morning. You hear the mosquitoes. And you hear the sound of your radar set. We had a radar set, see? That was what our company did. It was a radar company. And 24 hours a day, this radar set was going... And the big beaming arms would sweep over us. You'd hear them going past you in the night. Over, over your head it would go. And you hear the mosquitoes. And you hear the sound of this motor going. And our world was just one long sea of boredom. You know, have you ever been so bored you can taste it? Well, I'll tell you how boredom tastes. It, have you ever put a nickel in your mouth? Yeah, put a nickel in your mouth and hold it there for about three minutes. That is the peculiarly acid, metallic taste of boredom. Tastes just like that. And after a while, you can, you can sit there, you know, you, you can feel it. And the whole company is just sitting. And once in a while, somebody gets promoted to PFC. And that's a big day, see? We can all go down and watch him sew on his stripes. Give a little advice, you know, he's sewing on. That's a big moment. All right, you got the scene, and it's hot. Oh, boy, is it hot. The sun just lays up there 24 hours. It was even shining at night. Just a big, fat sun. Just going... I can remember we would go out in the morning for... We would stand out there. We'd come running out of the tent. They're blowing the whistles, and boom! It'd hit you on the head, and you'd sink. And we'd stand there in our shorts with our dog tags and our shoes... And Sergeant Kowalski would go up and down the line, calling the names. And you get, you know, the interesting thing about the Army, it gets to be a genuine ballet. You don't even hear your name anymore on the roll call. And he doesn't read it. He goes, hey, ho, hey, ha, ho, hey, hey, ha, hey, ha, ho. And when he hits your note, you go, ho. It's a fantastic ballet. Hey, ha, ho, ho. And you hear all these other guys go, ho, hey, ho, ho. And he can tell, see, there's tuned ears, you know. He can tell if a false note comes in. In other words, your buddy has gone AWOL and you holler, ho, he stops. He has to start from the top. He doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know where he gets. He starts at the top again. He goes, hey, ha, ho, ha, ho, ha, ho, ho. <laughs> and that's the kind of scene it is. It's just played out like a ballet, you know, we're hot and steamy. And, I, and, oh, yes, one of the great pleasures of that company was scratching your heat rash. <laughs> oh, yeah, we all had heat rash, you know. And the heat rash, I had a case of heat rash, so help me, that started three feet above my head. <laughs> yeah, I could scratch up there, see. And I'd start working all the way down. And it would go down into the ground, about a foot and a half. You know, once in a while, I'd jump to the side, see. And I'd see it up there. It crawls down. And, and, and we were sulfur sad because of the heat rash. And, and once in a while, the mosquitoes, you know, it's fascinating about mosquitoes. They, we grew a race of mosquitoes in the swamp that loved sulfur. And they'd smell it. You could hear them. Whenever a new case of sulfur would come in, they'd come in in great droning crowds. So that's the kind of life it was. Day after day. Week after week. Month after month after month after month. 
And then one day, one fantastic day, this first lieutenant, we got this new first lieutenant who was bucking for captain. You could see it all the way, you know, because nobody ever wore pressed fatigues in a swamp. And by the way, that's bad news. Whenever you run into a first sergeant or an officer that wears pressed fatigues, look out. This is a bad scene. And so here's this guy. He's right out of Fort Benning, you know, sharp. He's got these bright, shiny new silver bars. He's got the big crosses, you know, we had the big cross signal corps flags. And he's got this bright, shining, the bushy tail. And we're all standing there, this old grizzled company, Company K. And we're watching him. See, he's a new officer. And he's walking around in front of us. He says, men, I detect a noticeable lack of morale. <laughs> he detects a noticeable lack of morale. You know, and, and our eyes had ceased to be eyes now. They were little gray balls of silly putty. <laughs> you know, there's a certain point in boredom when you can't even see anything anymore. You know, you just sort of stand there. And we began to stir a little bit. You know, I could feel the company all around me gasser. Gasser, for the first time in eight months, is standing up straight a little bit. You could see him, see. He spent four months just looking at the ground, walking around. And over here to my right, I feel Edwards. Edwards is shifting a little bit, see. And behind me, I hear Metropolis. <laughs> Metropolis developed a ventriloquistic trick. Whenever there was an officer saying something silly, he would throw his boardyards into the lister bag. <laughs> and he made the sound of a chicken laying an egg. <laughs> now, that has a very special army connotation. You'll have to explain that. Yeah, it was a great sound. And it sounded like a chicken laying a square egg. <laughs> yeah, well, that has very special meaning. So you'd hear, here we're all standing, and this officer's walking around, he says, I detect, man, he hitches up his pants, a noticeable lack of morale. And then off in the distance you hear, <laughs> he says, damn chickens. <laughs> and you see Metropolis standing there. Metropolis had this little bowling ball that he kept under his belt. He was one of these guys who all the time at attention was like this. I remember one time Metropolis standing at attention. This is a true story. He's standing at attention like this, and the officer walks along. He says, pull in the gut there. Bang. And he hits him in the gut. He says, pull in your gut. Metropolis goes, doing. And Metropolis goes like this. You know, he just went out, and the back end comes out. The front end goes in. The guy walks, and now the guy's in back. He says, pull in your behind. The proper stands like this. So that's, that's the little scene going on in the army. See, we've got this little company, and we all work together like a well-oiled bear trap. You know, we're working together, see, and, and our enemy was the... Well, by the way, speaking of enemies, what radio station is this? Come on, hit it. And what town are we festering in? Start down like this, see. He's smiling. So I want to ask a question, men. And you see these bars glinting in this tropical sun. And off in the distance, you hear the sound of this of this big alligator. He turns around. He says, I'll be right back, Sergeant. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had a first sergeant who sounded exactly like an alligator in heat. 
Oh, yeah. In fact, I remember one night, one, one, at 3 o'clock in the morning, one night, I remember this, this GI. I'm laying in a sack. You sleep at night. I went for a whole year and a half without sleeping once. And I'm lying in there, you know, and I'm just covered with sulfur sap. And I'm sweating. And I can hear the lizards crawling on the top of the tent. And I can hear the mosquitoes pounding on my mosquito fire. Let me in! You know, come on, end it all! Come on, let me in. You can just hear it, see, and the bugs fly. I'll tell you one true story one night, one little fantastic moment of humor in the Army. We're all lying in this tent. There's about, you know, these eight-men tents, square tents. And all of a sudden, we hear this sound. All of us are lying there. It's about five minutes after lights out, see. And a couple of guys are talking a little bit, and then there's silence, falls, And the moon is hanging overhead. And suddenly, this sound, it goes... Something is flying around the tent. It weighs nine pounds. Yeah, I'm telling you, it goes. And I hear this guy says, Who's building model airplanes? And with that, one of the guys jumps up and he turns on this light. He's got a flashlight. And I tell you, there was a bug. It had a wingspan of nine inches. And I'm serious, it had a funny-looking face. It looked kind of like Roosevelt. <laughs> it had a face like FDR, you know, and it just sort of flew over us, you know. And somebody says, kill him, kill him! <laughs> you know, he's the guy that sent us all these messages, you know. Kill him, and it just flew right on out. And I've never seen that bug ever recorded. I've never seen it in world books or anything. So that's the kind of life we were living, see. We're now standing in line. The officer says, I detect noticeable lack of morale. And then we're going to do something about it. He turns, a stage pause. I can see him counting the beats. One, two, three. How many ball players are there in this company? Ball players. And ball players. He sees the question. And then he says, Yep, men. We are going to build a ball diamond. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there was this great sense of joy in the company. You know, everybody, you can just feel it, see? And Gasser says, yeah, there's a catch. I can hear. We couldn't believe it. We're going to build a ballpark. And 20 minutes later, we're all in these trucks, see? And we've got our shorts on. We're carrying shovels and picks, axes. And we were going out into the boondocks, and there was a great big area out there that was nothing but sand, surrounded by palm trees. And we started to work under that hot, boiling sun. We're building a ball diamond. We're going to have something that's our own. It's going to be our place, see. And nobody had ever been in that area for years. We never saw a human being there. We're going to have our own little ball diamond. We're chopping away, chopping, chopping. The next day, we're working more. The day after that, we work, and we're sweating. The temperature's 150 degrees. But there was joy in Company K. And this officer kept walking around. He said, I think we ought to have second base right out there. Second base. And you say, second base. And you see yourself sliding in, you know. Second base. Boy, we're building a diamond. We worked 16 days under this fantastic, broiling, incredible sun on our off hours in between times we ran that damn radar set or we laid there and fought the mosquitoes and we would never sleep we'd work 
And then one day, what a day. There it, there it was. There we had taken some flour sacks from the mess hall, and we, we put this white chalk all over them. We had first base, second base, third base, home plate. And we even built little stands out of planks, you know, where guys could sit and watch, the guys from the second platoon, you know. And in the outfield, we had cut all the palmettas down. And now here was this little island of joy, right in the middle of the swamp, nothing but trees, and this little tiny road which we built 15 miles back to our radar camp. It was the most remote little ball diamond I ever saw in my life. Beautiful little thing. And there we were. And the next morning, after our ball diamond was done, the officer standing out in front of us. He said, all right, men. And now i got a surprise for you. Gasser, go on back to the supply room and talk to Sergeant Schmidt. Tell him to get that big box. And Gasser cuts out. Ten minutes later, he's back with another guy and they're carrying the box. They open it up. And there they were. Two dozen softball bats. A big bag of brand new white softballs. About 15 gloves. A mask. The whole panoply of joy, fun, and games. I mean, you can't imagine how that looks in the Army after you've been slogging along, fighting the mosquitoes, fighting that crummy captain for years, fighting that radar set. Now we've got a little baseball game. And the first lieutenant says, All right, men, and now to celebrate, I'm going to give you guys the afternoon off. How about choosing up side a ball game? Fantastic! Choosing up sides. And so the corporal of the first platoon and the corporal of the second platoon, they're choosing up. Incidentally, you know those great moments of choosing up? This is something that I'll bet there are 25 men in this crowd get a sick feeling in the gut. <laughs> when, when that word, let's choose up, is heard and you see them hands. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is something girls never go through. I want to tell you how it works. In every neighborhood, there's two guys. One guy's named Mike. There's another guy named Al. Or maybe his name is Chris. These are the two guys who do the choosing. They are very different from the guys who get chosen. And they're always like this, forever, standing at a ballpark. All right, okay, Mike, here comes the bat. And Mike catches it, see? And they go like this. And all the rest of the guys are standing around. Look and see. These two guys are choosing up. And finally, this one guy goes, Chicken claws! And Mike says, oh, come on, no fair, chicken claws. And Al says, chicken claws. And Al is the, you know, there's always one guy that's a little notch ahead of the other one. Al's got the chicken claws. This is the great chicken clawed chooser. Have you ever had the feeling that God himself is a great chicken clawed chooser? Oh, yeah, it's luck and it's fate. He's got like this. All right, chicken claws. And then they drop the bat. They step back. Al looks over the crowd. And here are all the boys in the neighborhood, see. Immediately he says, okay, Howie. Howie is always first chosen. Howie never chooses. 
he's always first chosen. This long, lanky kid, you know, how he steps over like this. Somebody says, okay, Charlie. All right, Freddie, Mac, down the line it goes until there are just three guys left. <laughs> three guys left. Harvey? Here's little Harvey. He's trying to look tall, see? There's Harvey and there's Martin and there's Irv. And, and Al looks over at him and he says, okay, if you take Harvey, I'll take Martin and Irv. And here you are, you're Harvey. And, and here, can you imagine being Irv? He's the second man on a throw-in deal. Yeah, and there's plenty of Irvings right here. Yeah, and ten seconds later, Irving is out in right field. By the way, there is a rule in this game, everybody's out if they hit at the right field. So he's out in the right field, up to, the, up to his neck and boondocks, and he never gets a ball out there. And there's, there's that terrible fear that all men have. See, because girls don't choose up quite like that. There's the fear that Irvings of the world have. And that is, it's a kind of a double-edged thing. As he's out in right field, he looks down there and he says to himself, come on, hit one out here. Come on, hit one. Come on, hit one to me. He can see himself making this leaping catch. And then there's that other thing that keeps saying, oh, no, don't hit one at me. Oh, no. And then that awful moment when that, that ball is hit and it's coming right down at him. And he's circling around. That's the fear of the Irvings who are never chosen of the world, that one day a ball will be hit in their direction. You know, can you imagine this guy standing? How many of you know the guys that stand around next to the water cooler and they say, oh, that Johnson, what a silly fathead. Why, any idiot knows what to do in Vietnam. Ah, look, all he's got to do is pick up the phone. He calls McNamara. He goes over to the U.N., blah, 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 and hock a regular conk, blah, blah, blah. He's got it all figured out. And can you imagine the moment when he goes back to his, his office, see, and he sits down at the desk. All of a sudden, he goes, ah. He picks it up. He says, yeah, Bullard here. Who? The White House? I didn't order no hamburgers. White House? I thought you said White Castle, yeah. White House? Who? Who's on the phone? Who? <laughs> Put him on. <laughs> yeah, this is Charlie Bullard. Yeah, Charles J. Bullard. Are you sure you got the right number? You you what? You you heard about what I said next to the water cooler? <laughs> and you've been having a cabinet meeting about it? And you want me to come and run the show? Well, well, wait a minute, I gotta ask my wife. Yeah. Yeah, that's that terrible moment of suddenly being called, see? Well, here we are choosing up sides, playing the first platoon and the second platoon. Up it goes like that. And we start choosing. Okay, Gasser. Edwards, I'll take you. Metropolis, yeah. And a half an hour later, oh, what a scene. I can't, I, I must describe the scene for you. We ride out in this troop carrier. And there, it was the first time I ever heard Company K sing. And, <laughs> and we are singing, Off we go, and in a wild blue yonder, flying high. 
except those were not the exact lyrics. <laughs> you see, the Signal Corps had its own version of that song. And we're singing that song, and we arrive at the ballpark. We pour out of the truck. And we got our gloves. Guys got the bats. And everybody is getting ready to go out to their positions. I'm going to play third base. Remember that. I'm third base, see. So I go out to third base. I stand out there. The sun is beating down. Gasser is up at that. And all of a sudden, Gasser steps back and he says, Boy, is it ever hot. Sure is hot. Listen, you guys. Would any of you guys... Would any of you guys care if I take my pants off? It's hot. Okay. And within 10 seconds, it was, a, it was a ball game like you've never seen in your life. There were 18 guys, and all you could hear was the rattle of dog tags. That's all, you know. Oh, what a great ball game. You know, we're out there, and the sun is beating down. It was fantastic. We're sliding in the second, you know, and you get up, and you got... You got the sand all over in, your, in, the, in that sofa salve, and you get up and you lead off first, you know. It was a ball game. The first ball game I ever saw played absolutely stark naked with nothing. Each guy had nothing on but GI shoes and dog tags. Great, you know, we're having a wild time. You know. Guys are swinging, you know. You ought to see an outfielder running, stark naked. Running, you know. He makes this wild leap, you know. Oh, it's a great ball game. We're playing out there. We get deeply involved. The score is four to three. It's going into the last of the seventh inning. And I'm standing out there. We're 4,000 miles away from civilization. There's nobody ever out here, see. And I'm standing at third base. And all of a sudden, I notice going through the trees, I see this green staff car. It's a green staff car. And it's going through the trees. I figure, well, it's the first lieutenant come to see the ball game, see. And I see him coming along like this. The staff car makes a big turn pulls up and stops 15 feet from third base in the sand. And I'm standing there, I got the glove, you know. Over here is Gabby, he's moving back, he's playing shortstop. I glance over here at the staff. I, I look back. I can't believe it. Here is this fantastically beautiful 18-year-old blonde. It's a chick. And there I'm standing, see? I've got my feelers mitt, you know? <laughs> what a terrible moment at third base. Okay? I start moving away like this, see? And, and I see this girl, and I see sitting next to her, I see this white-haired man. He's looking out. His face is ashen. He's got that pale look. And I see these two eyeballs. These eyeballs are made out of blood. They're looking, see, like that. And then, and only then, did I notice three, count them, three big, shiny, silver stars. Stars. Why, do you know that in Company K, generals were mythological figures? I mean, they were like Prometheus. I mean, we heard about generals. The biggest thing we ever saw was a captain. And he was five feet three. I'm serious. And here was, I couldn't believe it. I think, I, I, at the first moment, I'll tell you the truth, I looked over there and I saw this guy sitting there and I thought, I'm serious, I thought it was a mirage. Three stars. And right on his bumper is this big red license plate. Boom. 
Boom. Boom. Three stars. I can't believe it. I'm standing at third base, and what do you do? I look over there, and I see this guy. He's looking out, and his chauffeur. There's this staff sergeant sitting there, and he's got this absolutely impassive face. He's looking right at me, and I see this chick. She's going... <laughs> Little, you know, I, all of a sudden, I had this was some fantastic dream she was having, you know? She's looking. I look at her. She looks at me. I said... <laughs> <laughs> and here, Gasser, he doesn't know what's going on yet. He's running around. Hey, come on, let's go. You know? I said, Gasser, Gasser. I said, Gasser. And I see Edwards over at second base. You know, Edwards is walking around. You know, he's, hey, come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. And I said, Gasser, Gasser, look at what's to my right. And Gasser said, oh, I said, you watch to the right. I'll take the balls here to the left. I said, Gasser, look. And Gasser looks. And he says, no. Oh, my God. He says, the heat's getting me. I says, no, Gasser, that ain't what's going to get you. It ain't going to be the heat. And at that instant, you know, the whole ball bar, all of a sudden, the entire, the entire ball, the whole game, it sort of stood in midair. It was like a fly caught in amber. The outfielders are paused. The batter's up there. That's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> and you don't know whether to salute. What are you all standing? <laughs> so there was just that, that terrible pregnant moment, and then the staff car backs up, turns around, and boom! He's gone. And all 18 of us stood there. And I'm telling you, we stood there. Uh, oh, it's just a fantastic moment. And the corporal, who's playing first base, he says, uh, <laughs> uh, form a column of twos. It's the only thing you can think of. That's the first thing the corporals think of when they're trapped, you know. Form a column of twos, and then we're all standing like this. Ball glove, dog tags, shoes. The sun. Our beautiful little ballpark spread out around us. And the corporal says, All right, attention. Hut! We stand. He says, Get dressed by the numbers. Hup! We're getting dressed, putting on our pants. And we rode back in absolute silence. And you know, it was one of those moments we could not believe that we had seen what we saw. We couldn't believe it even yet. And this chick couldn't believe what she... <laughs> you know, and, and we get back to the company area and, and oh, you know, there's that, you know how when you're a kid, you know that feeling when you arrive at home and you know that there's bad news? You just know it in your gut, you know. And, and this weapons carrier drove right down the company street and it was silence. And all you could hear was the sound of our radar set. There wasn't an officer on the street. I said, we figured maybe we made it clean. Maybe word hasn't gotten back. Maybe this was just, maybe it was a German spy. <laughs> you know, and so we're in the barracks. Real quick, we're getting dressed, you know. We're, we're even putting on our long johns. 
getting all dressed frantically, you know, like that. And then the whistles started to blow. You know that awful sound of whistles blowing? I've often thought, I would love to do this. I would like to walk along some very official street. Let's say, like, go uh, park at, at 3 o'clock in the morning with a whistle. It's blowing it, you know, one of those big bronze whistles. And holler up at the whole crowd. All right, you guys, fall out. Time for a medical inspection. The uniform will be helmet liners, raincoats only. Fall out right now immediately. The doctor's already here. Let's go. You'll have to explain that to her. I could see 400 vice presidents along Park Avenue all of a sudden wake up with that scared feeling. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Five minutes later, they're lined up on Park Avenue. And I'm the doctor walking along saying, Cough! <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments that we're getting dressed frantically. Boy, we're getting our clothes on. And now we're lined up. And you should have seen this scene. You know, it sounds almost like a mythological tale, but it is absolutely everything I've told you is absolute gold-plated truth. This officer is white, the first lieutenant. And he's standing out there waiting for us. And the first sergeant, Kowalski, he's got the clipboard. Over here is the duty corporal. And the first time I'd ever seen our duty corporal in clean suntans, you could see something has hit the fan. And it ain't silly putty, I'll tell you. You know, he's standing there and they're all, they're just, just white face. And he calls roll. Hey, he, uh, blah, 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 blah. we're going, hey, he, ho, hoo, ha, hoo, hoo. Attention! He turns to the first lieutenant. We just didn't have that kind of company. Nobody saluted in our company. I mean, nobody did all this stuff. He goes, turns back with that concrete face, and the first lieutenant steps around. Men, I hear you played a ball game today. Now, I don't want any smart talk. I don't mean that as a double entendre. Nobody knew what a double entendre was. We figured it was another kind of maneuver, you know, sort of a half-right face, you know. One of them Queen Anne drill tricky things they do in the Coldstream Guards, you know. He said, I don't want any smart talk here. Tomorrow morning, we are going back out in the boondocks with our shovels, with our picks, and we're going to cover up that damn ball field. General Somerville. General Somerville. Do you know who he was? He was the commanding general of the entire Signal Corps. That is roughly analogous to saying General Eisenhower. I couldn't believe that. General Somerville, this afternoon, paid a visit of inspection. And he wanted to see what we were doing for the morale of Company K. What you were doing for the morale, I did not have exactly in mind. 
General Somerville was there. Any of you guys want to say anything? You know, about 50 guys wanted to say, yeah, what's your phone number? You know, we're all standing there. It's all right. I just want to tell you one thing. You have put a black mark on my record. There will be no more ball games in Company K. I have other ideas for morale. Any questions? It was the saddest looking ball team you ever saw in your life. All standing there, see? Just like that. And then he said finally, All right, company dismissed. And five minutes later, we're sitting in the tents, in the barracks. You could hear the mosquitoes. You could feel the sun beating down on the top of that canvas. You could hear the radar set going, Arr. We just sat and scratched. Gasser says, you know, I'll bet if I told somebody, they wouldn't believe it. I said, that's right, Gasser. I don't believe it. And Edward's sitting over there. Edward says, I, it ain't possible. He said, I never saw nothing like this in the movies about the Army. <laughs> you, know, you never see Errol Flynn and Don Amici playing ball like that. You know, with, 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 with Frank Sinatra catching. And we're all playing this scene. And you know, I did not realize. We were all went on at the various parts. About six weeks later, our company was busted up. We went drifting off into the darkness. Company K was no longer. The people who had taken part in this historic ball game, in the middle of this gigantic battle against tyranny, it was what we were doing to fight Hitler. You know? And, and after a while, I got so that I didn't quite believe that this had happened to me. It sounded so funny. And I remember one night sitting, sitting with this girl. I'm out of the Army about two weeks. And she says, Anything funny happening in the Army? I mean, I hear a lot of funny things. And I says, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, there was this one time when we had this ball game, see? <laughs> and uh, and uh, the waiter brought the menu. And I suddenly realized I couldn't tell her about this. It was such a special thing, and I didn't really believe that it happened. And about a month after I got out of the Army, I'm in the VA. I'm about to go into the 5220 Club. And if you know this, this was the greatest thing that ever happened to Westward Man. The 5220 Club was this. The Army paid you $20 a week for 52 weeks for getting adjusted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I still haven't quite made it. And so we're walking around, you know, with our field jackets. And one day I'm at the VA. It's, it's the darndest thing. I'm at the VA and I'm sitting there. I still got my field jacket on, see? And I got the boots, you know, the whole bit. And you can see the place where my stripes were torn off. Yeah, I'm sitting there. And I suddenly see this other guy come in. He's got a field jacket. He's got a pair of boots. He walks in. He sits down on the bench. 
and he looks familiar. I look at him. He looks vaguely familiar. And then I can't believe it. It's the first lieutenant. You never expect to see the first lieutenant in the VA, you know, looking for a handout. You know, I'm sitting there. Here I am, corporal. See? And here's the first lieutenant. And I finally had to say it, see. I turned to him. I said, uh, <laughs> and you know, we're sitting there, and I could see where, you know, there were little threads on his field jacket, you know. We're both sitting there, and there's about nine other guys. And then I said to him, <laughs> uh, did you ever make captain? He looks forward, and he says, what'd you say? Oh, is that Mac? I said, did you ever make captain? He looked at me for a long look. He says, you're a third baseman. <laughs> he says, you're a third baseman. I said, that's right. I said, did you ever make captain? There's a long pregnant pause. No. I settled back. He said, did you ever make buck, Sergeant? No. Another long pregnant pause. And he says, whatever happened to that klutz gasser? Did he ever make PFC? I said, no. I think he might have got it as an honor after he got out. Honorary PFC. Another long pregnant pause. And I said, gee, that was a great game. And he says, yeah. That it cost me my captaincy. I says, yeah, it cost me a buck sergeancy. Cost Gasser his PFC. And we sat there for a long moment. He says, I wonder if it ever cost that chick any sleep. <laughs> She's probably been dreaming about that for years, you know. And I sat back and I says, I've been thinking about that once in a while myself. And he says, yep, I'll bet that was the greatest ball game she ever saw. I says, yep. And then there was another long pause and he says, I'll bet nobody believes it if you ever tell him the story. I says, yep. I tried to tell it to a chick the other night. He says, well, I tried to tell it to my mother. He said, I just couldn't, you know? I says, yep. And I never saw him again. And let me tell you the funny thing. The last time I told this story, five minutes after I went off the air, the phone rang. And there's this voice at the other end. It's a female voice. And she says, hello? And I says, hello? She says, were you the third baseman? <laughs> Somewhere she's out there. We'll be back next week at the same time.
This is WOR Radio, your station for news.